When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation, but before we get started, I did want to let you know about an intensive wellness retreat and conference that we are going to try to be holding, uh, and I say try, that's assuming the cruise lines are sailing, on February 7th through 13th of 2021. You can learn more about that at allceus.com slash cruise, but during that cruise period, you can actually earn up to 30 face-to-face -face CEUs. So again, go to allceus.com cruise slash cruise to learn more. Today, we are going to continue with our series that was designed for uh, Minority Mental Health Month on, and we're going to focus today on improving mental health of African and Black Americans. This presentation is based in part on SAMHSA Tip 59, which is called Improving Cultural Competence. If you go to the SAMHSA web website, you can download the entire tip and read it from stem to stern if you want to do that. I am your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. In this hour, we are only be going to be able to scratch the surface of what one needs to know to be a culturally responsive counselor. But this gives you an idea maybe of all the things that you didn't know that you didn't know. We're going to explore a little bit, the culture, values, and traditions of African and Black American. We're going to identify issues and barriers which need to be considered to provide culturally responsive treatment. And we'll learn about how to provide culturally responsive group psychoeducation. And we're really going to focus on uh, pedagogy that is culturally responsive. African Americans or Black Americans are people whose origins are in any of the Black racial groups of Africa or other countries. African Americans specifically come from the black racial groups of Africa, but there are a lot of other people who identify as black who don't come from Africa. And that's important to remember. African Americans uh, includes descendants of African slaves brought to this country against their will, and more recent immigrants from Africa, the Caribbean, South, and Central America. Many individuals from these latter regions, if they come from Spanish-speaking cultural groups, may identify primarily as Latino. We don't want to just look at somebody and think, okay, the color of your skin tells me a bunch about you. It doesn't. We need to ask. And the diatribe that I always go on at the beginning of these presentations, what I'm presenting here is very, very generalized information and does not necessarily apply to every African-American or Black American that you work with. So it's important to discuss with them, to talk with them about their values, about how much they embrace their culture of origin and what their beliefs are, not just to assume that based on gross generalities that you can anticipate what a client would need 
or is, is thinking. That's extraordinarily disempowering and paternalistic. In most African-American communities, significant alcohol or drug use may be socially unacceptable or seen as a sign of weakness, even in communities where the sale of such substances may be more acceptable. So that's an interesting little tidbit there. Overall, African-Americans and black Americans are more likely to believe that drinking and drug use are activities for which one is personally responsible. Thus, they may have difficulty accepting alcohol abuse or dependence as a disease. Now that is huge. If you are working with somebody who is in treatment for a substance use disorder and you are embracing your clinic embraces the medical model, embraces the 12 steps. Both of those refer to substance abuse or dependence as a disease. And that may not be how this population views it. So it's important to ask, how do you view this issue for, you know, where does it come from? Is it a disease? Is it, you know, a result of choices? How is it that you conceptualize addiction? African Americans and Black Americans are less likely than white Americans to receive treatment for anxiety and mood disorders, but they are more likely to receive treatment for drug use disorders. Unfortunately, this may be because of the disproportionate number of people who are referred from the criminal justice system. It's important to re remember that generally co-occurring disorders are the expectation, not the exception. We need to look and say, okay, substance misuse or substance abuse is a behavior. What is that behavior telling us? Where did it come from? It could have come from starting to use and experiment with drugs when you were knee high to a grasshopper and getting those neurochemicals out of whack and causing some brain changes through development that resulted in tolerant dependence. Possibly could happen. You know, that's the whole gateway drug theory. Or it could be a behavior that is saying, I need to numb the pain. I need to escape from this feeling of disempowerment right now. So, you know, I'm going to engage in these behaviors. There are a lot of different things that can be communicating other than that. What we need to do is ask the client, what does this behavior mean? What purpose does it serve for you? How is it functional? We don't do things that aren't functional. So in some way, that is working for the person. Now, it may not be working great, but it is serving a purpose, and we need to understand what that is. In one study evaluating PTSD among African and Black Americans in an outpatient mental health clinic, only 11% of clients had documentation referring to PTSD, even though 43% of clients showed symptoms of PTSD. Just let that sink in for a second. People who had already been evaluated, the evaluator just focused on um, one issue, whatever the presenting issue was, and didn't evaluate for trauma issues. Now, we know now, even since this tip was written, we know now that that is a huge mistake, but it is so important to understand the impact of trauma and the symptoms of PTSD and recognize what I call traumatic injury, even if it doesn't rise to the level of diagnosis by the DSM of PTSD, we need to re recognize the symptoms, the hypervigilance, the agitation, the, you know, flashbacks. There, there are a lot of issues that may come up for African and Black Americans that we need to be aware of 
and recognize how that impacts not only their treatment, but how they interface with our treatment staff, how they, you know, feel about our treatment center and the system, how they feel about a bunch of things. We need to recognize the symptoms of PTSD, again, even if it doesn't rise to the level of diagnosis. African and black Americans are more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia and less likely to be diagnosed with affective disorders than white Americans, even though multiple studies have found that rates of both disorders among these populations are comparable. We want to look at why is it that African and black Americans are more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia than, than white Americans, and in what ways are our assessment instruments biased? African Americans and black Americans are about twice as likely to be diagnosed with a psychotic disorder as white Americans, and more than three times as likely to be hospitalized for such disorders. So they are more likely to be diagnosed with schizophrenia or psychotic disorders and disempowered by a paternalistic system that hospitalizes them. We do want to uh, pay attention to this. For an overview of mental health across populations, refer to Mental Health United States 2010. It's a SAMHSA publication. It'll go into more statistics and details. You don't need to know all these facts. What I want you to focus on is the fact that it appears that a lot of our assessment instruments and or assessors are not culturally responsive, that are, they are biased toward white American symptoms and values. Blacks were much more likely to receive mental health services from general practitioners than from mental health specialists. We've seen this repeatedly throughout the different presentations in Minority Mental Health Month. A lot of cultures, including the African-American and black culture, may somaticize their symptoms more, partly because, you know, think back to that last slide, when they go into mental health treatment, they're not getting accurate diagnoses or adequate diagnoses, and they're getting involuntarily hospitalized more than others. You know, that's, you know, a big red flag for me, but also culturally, it may be more acceptable to present with fatigue, with, um, you know, restlessness and, and some of the physiological symptoms of mood disorders. Blacks and African Americans were significantly more likely than white Americans to have an undetective, undetected co-occurring mental disorder. And if detected, they were significantly less likely than white Americans or Latinos to receive treatment for that disorder. It just breaks my heart. Y'all know if you've come to my classes or watched the videos on the YouTube channel, you know how much I believe that physical health, mental, emotional health, and addiction are all interrelated and that it is virtually impossible to work with someone who has a substance use disorder who doesn't have some level of co-occurring mood issue. I mean, when you start sobering up, there is a lot to get anxious or feel depressed about. Now, maybe it only rises to the level of adjustment disorder if you have to put a, a diagnostic code on it. But it is so important to recognize that as people sober up and they, they're not able to numb it out, those mental health issues may become more prominent and may serve as a significant 
relapse trigger. 74% of African and Black Americans who had a past year major depressive episode were identified as also having both alcohol and marijuana use disorders. Well, I see some potential self-medication there. You know, both of these substances potentially can take the edge off some of that depression for people. African and Black Americans are overrepresented among people who are incarcerated in prisons and jails. A substantial number of those who are incarcerated, 64.1% of inmates in 2002, and my guess is it's a lot higher now, have mental health problems. I've worked with the criminal justice population. Just from anecdotal experience, I would say that if you include, you know, developmental issues, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, mood disorders, um, and, and substance use issues, you're getting way higher than 64.1%. Now, I don't have any hard data on that, um, except for one study that the sheriff in Alachua County did many, many years ago that assessed the incidence of trauma in female inmates in the Alachua County Jail, and they came up with a 99% rate of traumatic injury, maybe not, again, maybe not rising to the level of PTSD, but a 99% rate of traumatic injury among females who were incarcerated in that one jail. African Americans and Black Americans are more likely to be referred to treatment from criminal justice settings rather than self-referred or referred by other sources. There's a significant amount of caution uh, with self-referring to mental health treatment for a variety of reasons. Number one, being misunderstood. Number two, being misdiagnosed. Number three, for some, it is not culturally embraced to seek help from what is often a primarily white-dominated behavioral health system. I have worked in multiple behavioral health systems, and I can tell you that that edict that Jaco puts out that staff is supposed to be representative of the person served, oh my gosh, not so much. Yes, we may have a lot of diversity in the staff in general, but when you're looking at clinicians, it was almost always white. That is not representative of the client served. Just, you know, one of my little soapboxes. Lack of familiarity with the value and use of specialized behavioral health services may limit service use. We want to provide information about what's out there. And instead of saying, you need this, go into the communities and say, what do you need? Do you need psychoed on parenting? Do you need videos that you can watch on your mobile device while you are at home? because you can't come into treatment and you just need a little bit of information. What is it that you need and how can we help you? We got to get away from this paternalistic idea of this is what mental health looks like for everybody and I'm going to force it on you. And these are the services that work for everybody and I am going to make those available to you. Well, those services may not be what they want. I mean, think about when you go to a restaurant. And you're looking and there's, you know, chicken, beef, vegetarian dishes. Not everybody orders the same dish. Not everybody wants the same thing. And not every type of meal works for every person. Same thing with treatment. 
an essential step in decreasing disparity in behavioral health services among African and black Americans involves using culturally sensitive instruments and evaluation tools. It is important to look at the tools that you use and identify, you know, go back through the data if you're using standardized instruments and make sure they were normed to be used on that population that by ethnicity, by age, you know, there are a lot of things we got to look at. You can't use a tool designed for adults on a 14-year-old and expect it to be accurate necessarily. You can't use something that was normed on all white people and expect it to be accurate for minority populations. African Americans and black Americans were more likely than members of other major ethnic or racial groups to state that they lacked transportation to the program or that their insurance did not cover the cost of treatment. Huge issue, huge issue. So we need to step back and say, okay, transportation and financial are huge barriers. How can we make it affordable? And instead of brainstorming among ourselves, we need to go into those communities and say, how could we make this useful and available in a way that you use it? If the culture in that particular community, and remember, cultures vary. If you're in a rural community, an urban community, you know, there are a lot of differences. A African American or Black American in rural Middle Tennessee may have very different approaches or beliefs about treatment than one that lives in, you know, Metro New York. So we do need to be sensitive and again, not overgeneralize and ask in Alachua County, Florida, you know, I worked down there for 14 years in community mental health. So that's one area that, that I'm familiar with. And we created a lot of programs and some of them got used a lot uh, because they were effective and they were available because we were going into the communities, providing services at the clubhouses. And it was effective um, uh, for that for those people and other services like some of the prevention services that we offered at the schools fell flat. And in, in retrospect, we could look back and go, you know what, we didn't ask people, you know, how they would feel about having to commit to 16 classes at a school, you know, once a week for 16 weeks. That is a huge thinking commitment uh, for anybody, not to mention somebody who is, you know, working a nine to five job or whatever. So that all those things are really important. We need to identify the barriers by asking what are the barriers in this community. And then we need to brainstorm with the community, what are ways we could get around these barriers? You know, and there are a lot of creative solutions, not the least of which is, um, you know, Zoom meetings, not Zoom in particular, but uh, HIPAA compliant uh, video-based meetings where people can log in if they can't get, and, and you can have people in the same room in, with you and be simulcasting at the same time so you can reach more people. But, you know, I, I digress. It's important for you to work with your community. Longstanding suspicions regarding established healthcare institutions can also affect African and Black Americans' participation in attitude toward and outcomes after treatment. If they have been involved in the behavioral health care system or even in 
the system, whether it's you know, DCF or the legal system or even, unfortunately, the educational system. They may have already felt disempowered. They may have already felt ignored. So they may not be willing to come forth and say, I need these services or I want help because they have not received assistance or they, you know, we haven't responded appropriately in some of our larger institutions. Attitudes towards psychological services appear to become more negative as psychological distress increases. Well, the more helpless and hopeless they start to feel, guess what? The more disempowered they start to feel and they start looking at this system going, I don't know what you can offer me. And we need to be able to answer that question. We need to be able to communicate to persons of other cultures, what is it that our agency can offer you? In many African-American communities, there's a persistent belief that social and treatment services try to impose white American values. It's important that you evaluate your own cultural practice, as well as your agency's practices from check-in to how, how you handle data, to how you interface with people, to the expectations of, for example, having transportation. Evaluate for cultural responsiveness and cultural insensitivity. African and Black Americans, even when receiving the same amount of services as white Americans, are less likely to be satisfied with those services. We need to look at why. And instead of saying, well, they were resistant, I hate that word, we need to ask them, in what ways was this not helpful to you? What could we have done differently? We need to learn from the populations that we serve. Once engaged, African-American and Black American clients are at least as likely to continue participation as members of other ethnic race or racial groups. There's that phrase right there that is so crucial. Once engaged, once they're motivated, once they feel safe, once they feel heard and understood, they are at least as likely to continue participation as anybody else. Providers need to craft culturally responsive health-related messages for African and Black Americans to improve treatment and engagement and effectiveness. We need to find out you know, what messages are they receiving right now that are off-putting and what messages might we be able to communicate that would help the community feel understood. And part of that, I think, I believe, is just getting into the community and talking with them and empowering them to have a voice. And then, oh my gosh, guess what? That, what does that communicate? That communicates, I am interested in you. I value your opinion. I want to make this environment safe and helpful. African-American clients generally respond better to an egalitarian and authentic relationship with counselors. Request personal information gradually rather than attempting to gain information as quickly as possible. So when you go in for your assessment with a client, you know, don't sit down and start interrogating them, please. You know, explain to them what the process is going to be like. And, you know, maybe if you've got a lot of those demographic questions that you have to go through, apologize. Say, you know, I'm really sorry. I know this makes you feel like a number and I hate having to ask these questions, but, um, you know, at least acknowledge and empathize with the person, how they might be feeling. 
Avoid information gathering methods that the client could perceive as an interrogation. If you need data for some reason, which we all do, if you're, especially if you're working in community mental health, tell them why you need the information. A lot of times, most of the demographics can be gathered from a sheet that the client fills out themselves before they even come back. Try to minimize any demographic information that you've got to collect and stuff uh, anything, any questions that might seem like you're just sitting there interrogating them. So you can get down to the nitty gritty and start learning about the person and why they're there and how you can help. Be willing to address the issue of race and to validate the African-American or black American clients experiences of racism and its reality in their lives, even if it differs from your own experiences. Their experiences are theirs. You have no idea what it's like to be them. And we can ask, we can talk about it, but you know, a lot of times if especially if you are, you know, a white American female, you're not going to quite get it. Uh, so let's talk about it. Let's hear about it. Help me empathize. Help me understand. Racism and discrimination can lead to feelings of anger, anxiety, or depression. These feelings are pervasive. Counselors should explore with clients the psychological effects of racism and develop approaches to challenge internal negative messages that have been received or generated about race. Now, I say that, but I also say at the same time, not all Black or African-American clients are going to see this as an issue for them or feel like it's something that they need to discuss. So it's important not to push this agenda on them either. Open the door. If they feel it's an issue, let's talk about it. If they don't feel it's an issue, that's okay too. The same sort of thing is true in trauma-informed care because in trauma-informed care, we recognize that most people have experienced traumas in their life. And, you know, every experience we have affects us. However, not everybody is, believes that the trauma is currently impacting them or do they want to go there, so to speak. And we need to be sensitive to those things. Six course principles, discussion of client substance use or mental health issues should be framed in a context that recognizes the totality of life experiences faced by African and black Americans. Equality is sought in the therapeutic counselor client relationship and counselors are less distant and more disclosing. It's important to be real, to be authentic. Go figure. Emphasis is placed on the importance of changing one's environment, not only for the good of the client themselves, but also for the greater good of their communities. And there is a strong community component for a lot of black and African American uh, that, that we can, that we can pull on, that we can help them nurture in order to heal their communities. Focus is placed on coping strategies and solutions that underscore personal rituals, cultural traditions, and spiritual well-being in some cases. Remember, not everybody is going to, um, embrace their spirituality or their cultural traditions. So we need to ask the clients solution focused questions. What is it that has helped you with this issue or something similar to it in the past? What types of things do you think might be helpful to help you improve how you're feeling right now? Ask questions. Recovery is a process that involves gaining power in the forms of knowledge, spiritual insight, and community health. Recovery is framed within a broader context of how recovery contributes to the overall healing and advancement 
of the community. Interventions should make use of the core African-American value of communalism by addressing the ways in which the individual's substance abuse or mental health issues affect his or her whole community. African-American or Black American music, artwork, and food can help programs create a welcoming and familiar atmosphere. When people walk into your lobby, when they walk into your office, you want them to feel like they are recognized. You want them to know that you don't overlook them. So having representation is important to let them know that, you know, I don't know everything, but I do recognize that they're you are an important person and I want to help you feel comfortable. One intervention that appears to work better for African-American and Latino clients than for white Americans is a node link map, which is a visual representation using information, diagrams, fill in the blank graphics and client generated visual maps. So they, in the center, they can draw, you know, a circle. I'm big on surf and my depression. And then they can start identifying in different nodes, all the different things that may be contributing to their depression on another node link. They can identify happiness or recovery or whatever they want to call it, and then start identifying nodes that might help contribute to that. So in times in the past, when they were happy, healthy, sober, what was different, what contributes and what will contribute in the future to their happiness. Cognitive behavioral therapy has a certain distinct advantages. It fosters a collaborative relationship, recognizes that clients are experts on their own problems. And when comparing cognitive behavioral therapy and 12 step facilitation for a group of mostly African-American or black American men who are homeless, found, it found that cognitive behavioral therapy achieves significantly better abstinence outcomes than the 12-step facilitation. I thought that was an interesting bit. The living in balance intervention, which uses psychoeducation and cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, has also been shown to improve treatment retention and reduce substance use. Now, remember, you can find all of these resources in the SAMHSA tip. A review of cultural adaptations of evidence-based practices is given by Bernal and Dominic Rodriguez in uh, 2002. So you can find, if you search online for, uh, for that cultural adaptations of evidence-based practices by Bernal and Rodriguez, uh, 2012, you can find more information. Strengths of African-American family life include strong bonds and extensive kinship, adaptability of family roles, but there is still a strong family hierarchy. A strong work orientation, a high achievement orientation, and a strong religious orientation. These are all things we need to kind of learn about during the assessment with our, with our potential client, you know, which of these strengths applies to them, applies to their family, and can we build on? African and Black American clients appear more likely to stay connected with their families throughout the course of their illness. They are embedded in a complex kinship network of biologically related and unrelated persons. Hence, counselors should be willing to expand the definition of family to an extended kinship person. They need to be asked, how do you define your family? Who would you identify as like family who may or may not reside in your home or who you would rely on for help? To build a support network for African and Black American clients, we should start by asking clients to identify people who would be willing and able to support their recovery and then ask clients for permission to contact those people and include them in the treatment process. Now, a lot of clients are not going to be down with 
involving other people, but some will. And it's important to open that door and ask, who is it that might be willing to participate? Engaging Moms is a family-oriented program and intervention developed specifically for African and Black American mothers that's been shown to significantly improve treatment engagement. A multi-system family approach uh, incorporates an extended network of relationships that play a part in the client's lives. Using this model, social service and other community agencies can be considered a significant part of the family system. Network therapy, which involves the client's extended social networks, has also been found to improve outcomes for African and Black American clients when added to standard treatment. This whole multimodal, multidisciplinary approach is important because we need to look at that Maslow hierarchy and figure out, you know, where are the gaps in what needs this person is getting met? The family team conference model can be a useful approach given that it also engages both families and communities in the helping process by attempting to stimulate simulate extensive mobilization of activity in the formal and informal relationships in and around clients' families. So you may have a representative from this. You may have a representative caseworker or something. There may be multiple people involved in the team conference that are designed to provide a recovery-oriented system of care. Because of the communal cooperative values held by many African and Black Americans, group therapy can be a particularly valuable component of the treatment process. Speaking in groups is generally acceptable to African and Black American clients, but we should be aware that Black Caribbean Americans can be less comfortable with the group process, particularly the requirement that they self-disclose personal problems to people who are relative strangers. So you may need to have a closed group if you have people who are um, from, the, from the Caribbean. African and Black Americans seem less likely to self-disclose about past, the past in group settings that include non-Hispanic whites something to be aware of. And I think part of this is because of the perception of lack of safety. We need to ask people, what do you need in order to feel safe in this environment? Homogenous African and Black American groups can be good venues for clients to deal with systemic problems such as racism and lack of economic opportunities in the community. The Black community has changed the mutual help model for substance use and mental health to make it more empowering and relevant to African American participants. For additional information on 12 Steps, bleh, 12 steps for African Americans, visit Alcohol Anonymous World Services AA for the Black and African American Alcoholic, which is available online. So there are cultural adaptations that we can use to be a little bit more responsive. African and Black American culture and history is steeped in healing traditions passed down through the generations, including herbal remedies, root remedies, and so forth. Acceptance of traditional practices by African American clients and their families does not necessarily indicate that they oppose or reject modern approaches, but they're open to more things. They can accept and use all forms of treatment selectively depending on the perceived nature of their health problems. Many times, psychological and substance abuse problems may be seen as having spiritual causes that need to be addressed by traditional healers or religious practices. We want to ask who might be helpful. African Americans are much more likely to use religion or spirituality as a response to physical or psychological problems. Their cultural and religious institutions play an important role in treatment and recovery, education, politics, recreation, and social welfare throughout their whole community. Interestingly, 
A growing number of African-American and black Americans are converts to Islam, and many recent immigrants from Africa to the United States are also Muslim. We don't want to assume that they are Christian. We want to ask what their religion or spiritual practices are. It's not uncommon for African-Americans to approach clergy first with mental health or substance abuse problems, but many clergy believe they are not well prepared to address those problems. Light bulb. Here's a great opportunity to involve clergy in your community, not just from the black churches, but from all churches to provide education, to provide basic tools and to facilitate referrals when necessary. Consider involving African-American clergy in treatment programs to improve and better engage clients and their families. If there is somebody, you know, in your residential or IOP program, if there is someone who is a, a pastor that they can go and talk to, you know, that might be an excellent option for them, excellent resource for them to have. Other means of engagement within the church can lead to recovery, including participation in religious services and the use of peer mentors. Work with clergy, work with the churches to identify ways that you can help their, um, the people that attend their church. How can we help them improve their health and well-being? We don't have to go in with how can we identify substance abuse and depression. Let's go in and say, how can we help the entire congregation improve their health and well-being? What is it that we can do to be of service to you, the pastor, to facilitate growth and, and improvement of health and well-being within your um, within your congregation. African-American clients tend to underestimate the difficulties they will face after treatment. They report a greater need for resources and greater exposure to high-risk situations, but still have a greater belief in their ability to maintain recovery. And, and this may be very, very true. I also wonder how much of that belief is steeped in their desire to get out of the pre predominantly paternalistic white organization, um, and, and they would rather rely on their traditional community-based systems. I don't know. Although an individual's belief in coping can have a positive effect on initially managing high-risk situations, it can also lead to a failure to recognize the level of risk in a given situation, anticipate the consequences, secure resources and appropriate support when needed, and engage in coping behaviors conducive to maintaining recovery. So guess what? Here are four bullet points for anybody's relapse prevention plan. I don't care whether we're talking about major depressive disorder or cocaine abuse. These are four things that we need to identify in the, well, ideally early in the treatment process that people can start implementing when they're not actually in session, but definitely by discharge, we want a relapse prevention plan that addresses these issues. Counselors can help clients practice coping skills by role-playing, even if clients are confident they can manage difficult or high-risk situations. When you role-play an individual, obviously, you know, you're working with that with that client and just having them demonstrate what they can do. Um, when you're working in group, one of the things that you can do is take people who are confident in their skills and you can have them model by role-playing for the group, uh, model those skills. So they're still practicing, but they do feel like they are helping out the group. Culturally responsive group education. And I do see a lot of comments over here and I promise I will get to those. That's why I'm kind of trying to slide through these, th through the rest of this presentation. So I'm not, I'm not ignoring you. 
A common misconception about culturally responsive instruction is that facilitators must teach the Asian way or the black way. People often get intimidated by the words culturally responsive because of the incredible number of cultures and mixes of cultures in today's treatment groups. Too often, clinicians subscribe to the misguided idea that clients of different races need to be taught differently and waste an enormous amount of time and effort in the process. Find common ground. If you're doing a group, you know, most people listen to music. So if you want to involve music in the process, you know, you can either talk, see if you can find a type of music that everybody likes or have them bring in lyrics or, you know, play a song that they like that particularly represents a particular issue. People don't have to be African-American, Latino, or from any particular background to listen to a particular type of music. When you teach complicated concepts, make analogies or use metaphors that apply to the people that you're working with. If you're working with a group that is in rural Tennessee and they are primarily um, agricultural in occupation, well then guess what? You're going to use a much different analogy with those that population than you are with someone, you know, again, is in urban New York City. Um, talk about things that they're interested in. And if you're working, it doesn't matter what age group you're working, ask them, what types of things are they interested in? At the beginning of group, talk a little bit about, you know, what things that happened over the week that they thought were interesting, you know, movies they saw or think mu music that came out or whatever. Get an idea, you know, connect with them on a human level. Go figure. Teach the entire concept, whatever you're teaching. It can be acceptance and commitment therapy or the ABCT or completely different. Teach the entire concept in a way that all of your participants can relate and understand using aspects of their cu cultures with which you are comfortable. You know, you don't have to put yourself in a, a place where you're uncomfortable. But for example, when you're teaching mindfulness, you know, you can teach the core of mindfulness and then you can talk with your group about what mindfulness means to them and if they have any um, things that they they learned in their family that relate to mindfulness. You know, sometimes the word ritual doesn't hit really well. Meditation, vulnerability prevention, cognitive behavioral therapy, boundaries. There's lots of stuff that we teach, but we want to know, um, you know, what those concepts mean to the clients that we're working with. It's important to know the learner. And, you know, a lot of the stuff we're talking about right now comes from this article, Culturally Responsive Differentiated Instructional Strategies Met from the Metropolitan Center for Urban Education at New York University. But back to how to do this, know the learner. We need to know as much as possible about our participants to teach them well, including their learning styles. Are they auditory, visual, kinesthetic, the pace of learning? Are they active learners? They learn as they go or reflective where they need information and they need a minute to process it. Um, their multiple intelligences. Where are their strengths? Personal qualities such as personality, temperament, motivation, personal interests, potential disabilities, health, family circumstances, and language preferences. Traits of a quality group facilitator. We believe all participants can learn and can recover. We have the desire and capacity to differentiate curriculum and instruction for people. And we understand diversity and think about participants developmentally. You may have people in your group who are developmentally 
at a different place. They may be chronologically at the same place. They may all be 42 years old, um, but some may be developmentally at a different place through brain injury or, or something else. So we do need to be responsive to everyone in our group and providing a quality curriculum that is interesting to the participants, relevant to their lives, appropriately challenging and complex, thought-provoking, focused on concepts and principles, not just facts, focused on, a quali on quality, not quantity, stress depth of learning, and not just coverage for coverage's sake. We want to be able to have people walk out of each session thinking, okay, that was important for me to know because, which is why I usually start most of my groups with why this is important to your recovery. Um, and then at the end of group, I have people go around and share what was one thing that they got out of the lesson that, or the, the group that is going to help them in the upcoming flexible teaching and learning. We need to include team facilitation, block scheduling, you know, multiple different auditory, visual, kinesthetic resources. Not everybody is going to do well in a group where you sit in a circle and talk. Um, most people, you know, I for one, y'all know I'm a visual learner. I've said that a bunch of times. I need to see things written on the board or I need to be able to notes. I need visual stimulation, kinesthetic, you know, role plays, skits, you know, those sorts of things. Even um, applying it on worksheets can also be very helpful. Uh, instructional delivery and best practices includes flexible grouping, cooperative learning, learning stations and centers, individual treatment plans, and literature or learning circle. So thinking about how you could apply that in your setting. How can you engage in or enc encourage clients to engage in cooperative learning? Um, at one of the facilities I worked at, we had a library where people could go. It was a safe place where they could go and, and learn, um, you know, read self-help books, read some of the handouts that we had, and share with one another what they had learned. We had a lot of peer recovery specialists specialists that um, worked really well. Assessment evaluation includes observations, skills, checklists, demonstrations, semi-structured interviews, and standardized tests. Not everyone is going to work for every person. We need to communicate high expectations consistently from both the facilitator and the whole treatment program with the belief that participants will succeed based on genuine respect for them and genuine belief in their capabilities. We need to use active teaching methods to promote student engagement by requiring that they play an active role in developing their treatment plan, in identifying the interventions that might be helpful for them. We need to have the leader serve as a facilitator, not a, you know, all-encompassing, I know everything, but we want to facilitate the learning process. Within an active learning environment, the facilitator's role is one of guide, mediator, and knowledgeable consultant. We want to put positive perspectives on families of culturally diverse participants because there's an ongoing participation in dialogue with participants and community members on issues important to them, along with the inclusion of these individuals and issues in group or program curriculum activity. Go out and ask what issues are important to the communities with which you are, with whom, with which you are working. Make sure the lobby has reading materials about families and children from different walks of life. We want to maintain frequent communication with family members as appropriate. 
We want to attempt to relate all stories or anecdotes, messages to the personal lives of participants. What's going on right now? Um, And concepts are linked to learning about families, backgrounds, and culture. To maximize learning opportunities, facilitators need to gain knowledge of the cultures represented in their classrooms and translate this into instructional practice. When they do, they reshape their curriculum in a way that's culturally responsive to the background of the participants and uses a variety of learning strategies. Instruction is characterized by the use of culturally mediated cognition. You know, how does this culture think and what types of schemas influence their um, perception of things and culturally appropriate social situations for learning that are culturally valued. Participants are often given opportunities to control some of the portion of the lesson, providing facilitators with insight into the ways that speech and negotiation are used in the home and community. So when we let people take a more active role, guess what? They're going to recreate on, in a microcosm the what happens on the outside in the macrocosm. And we're going to see how they interact, how they talk, how th- what things are important to them, how they set structure and boundaries. Related discourse instruction is also organized around low-pressure student-controlled learning that can assist in the development of, in this case, academic language, but also health literacy. Gamification. Most games employ a lot of the cultural tools that you'd find in oral traditions, such as repetition, solving a puzzle, making connections between things that don't seem to be related. Some of the games that you might use that, you know, tend to, you know, spice up your group a little bit. Uh, Jeopardy, taboo, um, lottery, different different types of lottery games, and create a game, which is exactly what it sounds like. You say, okay, I want to teach this concept of serenity or acceptance or or whatever. How could we turn this into a game and have people talk? You know, because in order to create the game, they have to understand the principle. So it's an interesting way to get them to work together in a way that besides just lecture. Uh, make it social, organize learning so that participants rely on each other um, in order to build communal orientation and participation. Have people um, work with one another. Have people work in groups. Even if you break your group up so it's in dyads, you know, that encourages people to work together and start learning how to communicate with one another and relying and getting relying on and getting to know one another. The communal orientation can be summed up in the African proverb, I am because we are. Even making learning slightly competitive in a good natured way may increase participants level of attention and engagement. Ask clients, you know, how can we work together to solve this problem or prevent it in our children? Present sort of a, a meta concept and have People discuss on a meta-concept level. What can you do? What are some ideas that we can use to address this issue? Storify it. The brain is wired to remember stories and to use the story structure to make sense of the world. So we can use that story structure and help people create a story, even have them write a story uh, that teaches a particular concept. Maybe you can have them identify a, a main character and how this main character encounters adversity and figures out which tools to deal with the heartache that occurred because of that diversity. Diverse 
participants learn content more effectively if they can create a coherent narrative about the topic or process. It's the brain's way of weaving it all together. So have them create skits or role plays to demonstrate a topic or a concept. Uh, break them into smaller groups. You know, if you're working in the community, you can break them into, you know, groups of parents, of pastors, you know, you can break them into groups like that, or just have them count off one, three, four, have them relate what they're learning to something that they already know that is important to them. Music, the Bible, the Quran, a piece of literature, a current event, something that is meaningful to them. So how can they relate it? A lot of times right now, when I'm talking about distress tolerance, uh, with clients and psychological flexibility, we're talking about, guess what? COVID we're talking about, um, social unrest. We're talking about um, racial issues and how people are uh, experiencing those. And we're relating what we're learning to how they're coping with all of those things. Explore the culture, values, and traditions of African and Black Americans to include communalism and the importance of spirituality for many clients, not all clients. And I, as I've said repeatedly in this presentation, we can't lump anybody together you know, just willy nilly without asking them because every individual is unique and it's important to remember that. But this gives you some broad information to go, oh, I never knew that. Let me go back and do some more research about, for example, my assessment instruments to see if that they are uh, culturally biased. Let me do a little bit more research on this topic over here that we touched on in class because that might be impacting engagement. It's important to identify issues and barriers which need to be considered to provide culturally responsive treatment, including ineffective assessment tools, lack of insurance or transportation, and lack of awareness of the types and benefits of counseling services. Again, we don't want to throw this at them, say, okay, the research says you need these things in order to participate. So here they are. That may not be what they need or the way that they need it. So we need to ask them, you know, all the transportation in the world is not going to help a family um, or a person who's working two jobs and they don't have time off. They get paid hourly. So asking them to take off two hours to drive to an appointment, sit through an appointment and leave an appointment to get back to work may not be plausible. So what else can we do to facilitate um as much as possible recovery for that person. Learn about how to provide culturally responsive group psychoeducation, including how to teach to the collective culture in a multicultural group and become a more effective group facilitator. And learn about a variety of evidence-based practices demonstrated to be effective with African and Black Americans. And you can go online and you can search the national da database of evidence-based and promising practices to find such things that are specifically um, evaluated based on their effectiveness on with different populations, with different cultures. Okay, like I said, I saw there were a lot of things here, so let me just scroll back. I am not aware of the research on post-traumatic slave syndrome, but, you know, I can, I will certainly take a look at it and add it as a resource in your class. Um, transgenerational trauma is definitely a huge issue when looking at the schema that influence how Black and African Americans perceive and react to the world and what their experiences are. I'm not sure what you mean about pharmacology for 
this particular population. I haven't done any research, and I don't know if there is any research out there that specifically addresses pharmacology for um, the the black or African American population. And as I mentioned, you know, whether it's somebody who is a um, recent immigrant or has been here all their lives, or they live in a rural place or an urban place, um, you know, we can't assume that we know exactly what they're thinking or what their values are. We need to ask. We can't generalize. In some cases, um, when we're talking about treatment, uh, outpatient treatment or 12-step, a lot of people are given the option of engaging in once-a-week outpatient treatment or going to the self-help groups. So when people were engaged, that study looked at, you know, when people were engaged in one or the other for that level of care, um, you know, was it effective? It's not always an and proposition. For some people, you know, they don't want to go to treatment. They are willing to go to 12-step or vice versa. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.